Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson from the ministry staff at Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Following was recorded on Sunday, April 16, 2023. Today's message title, Operating in the Grace of God, a study from the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be, uh, so we just wrapped up Easter. We're going to be jumping back into Nehemiah. Uh, as if, if you haven't been to our church a lot, then we usually work our way through books of the Bible. Right now we're in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're doing the first five verses. In chapter nine. So would you stand with me as we, as we read this? Oh yeah. My wife was doing the slides this week. So it's, it's preaching time. <laughs> uh, so Nehemiah, the, the title of today is going to be outward, outward appearances and inward realities. And so let's read this text together. Now, on the 20th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day, for another quarter, if they had made confession um, of it, sorry, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs, of the Levites stood Joshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenanai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Joshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hesbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Hethahiah <laughs> said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And I think we can end with saying amen to that. Yeah, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so Elliot, if you didn't know this, before Easter, he did a sort of overview of Nehemiah 9. He did the entire chapter. And now we're going to zoom in a little bit. And today we're just going to focus on the first five verses of this chapter. They've gotten to the point where Nehemiah has restored the wall to Jerusalem. And you might think, you know, at the start of this book, that it's all about building a wall. But the point of building a wall was not the wall itself, but rather for um, having uh, the protection to worship God freely, to live their lives freely. And uh, for me, I think that's sort of, I, I don't know, maybe even a warning for, for many, many of us who have grown up in churches. Uh, so often we can get our focus wrong, right? We can think that church is about building bigger buildings or having better programs and not realizing that, hey, a building only serves to function, to serve the church in a way so that we can worship freely. It's not about the building or the stuff. Um, But in verse five, we see that the Levites, they start a prayer. Uh, By the way, Christian, can you turn me down a little bit? Uh, Am I echoing a little bit? Is is this better? Yeah, okay. Uh, So in the fifth verse, we see the Levites who are, the priests, they're starting a prayer and the rest of the chapter is really this prayer of theirs. They're praying uh, 
a bunch of realities about God. And I think it's awesome for us to take a little time to zoom in and say, okay, what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about us? Uh, and if you didn't know this, this is a little fun fact about Nehemiah chapter nine. This that we're about to go into, the rest of this chapter is the longest recorded prayer in all of the Bible. Um, I don't know if you knew that, but I um, mean, that was a surprise to me. I never really gave it a whole lot of thought, but just remember that. So if you're in here, let's do a raise of hands if you're willing to be honest. How many of you feel that your prayer life needs improvement, right? Okay, I think as Christian, I think it's like a common thing among Christians that we almost every time uh, feel like we need to improve. We can always do better, right? Um, but here's, here's an encouragement. Maybe you're in here and you think, man, my prayer life needs improvement because I can only spend five minutes and then my, my thoughts are somewhere else, you know? Uh, this is the longest prayer recorded in the whole Bible. And depending on how fast you read, it takes roughly five to six minutes to read through the entirety of the prayer. Think about this. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, teach us how to pray, he taught them the Lord's prayer. And how long does that take to say? Like roughly a minute or so, right? And so for many of us, we might think or have the propensity to think, man, if I don't pray long enough, if I don't pray loud enough, if I don't pray with words that are impressive enough, then my prayer life is not going to be powerful. But here we get to the longest prayer recorded in the whole Bible, and it's five minutes. And it just makes you think, what is the power of prayer? What makes prayer powerful? And you get to like think about, okay, what does the Bible tell us about prayer and approaching God? Well, you get to verses like 1 Peter 5 or James chapter 4, and you see verses like this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that something? Pride is a rather sort of acceptable sin in the church, if you would say. Like there's, there's many Christians who would point at others for the various ways that they fail and say that you need to repent of that. But pride is pretty prevalent within the church and pretty accepted within the church. But here, this is a serious verse. It's not just saying that God doesn't like pride. It's saying, no, if you have pride, if you come to him with pride, he will not only not listen to you, he will stand against you. The God of the universe. Now, listen, First Peter 3, 7. The Bible tells us, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Not a very popular verse. It doesn't say weak vessel, just FYI. This they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that you, your prayers may not be hindered. Peter there is saying, hey, your relationship with your wives impacts how effective and powerful your prayers are. Not how long they are, not how impressive the words are, uh, not how loud you yell out the prayers, but rather how you behave towards your wife. And what is the idea that he's getting at here? He's reminding us that the power of prayer, the effectiveness of prayer is not measured in the words that you use, but in the, the posture of your heart. That is how the New Testament talks about the effective prayer. Again, here's another example, James 5, 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What does he say? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And what I like about this verse is that he doesn't equate uh, flawless, um, morally uh, flawless people 
as the, the righteous people. No, he says, if you are the one who's willing to confess your sins and have people pray with you and, and you're willing to basically humble yourself, then that is a righteous person whose prayer is effective as it's working. Now, remember this at as you grow in your walk with God and in your prayer life, the effectiveness of your prayer life cannot be separated by your walk with God in every aspect of life. It's not necessarily about the words that you use, but your relationship with the one with whom you are talking. So grow in humility. That is giving yourself under God's word, allowing him to change you and use you. And as you go, start praying, even short prayers throughout the day as you remember that this is not about your pious behavior or nice words, but rather, and you have access to the throne of grace. That is amazing. It is amazing that the Bible tells us to, to come without fear to the throne of grace. Come without fear to the one who is perfect and honorable and righteous. That is amazing. And here's why I start with this. Because before Nehemiah goes to the recorded prayer in this chapter, he first records the posture of the people. In our text, we see, we see sackcloth, we see asses, we see fasting, we see grief, we see confessions of sins and worship. And so I wanna take us verse by verse and, and let's start with the first two verses with Nehemiah 9, one through two. It says, now on the 20th, uh, 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So guys, um, we have to have an awkward conversation today. I don't see any sackcloths in here, by the way. And I don't see anybody with mud on their face. And so if we're gonna be a biblical church, I expect to see us all next week wearing some uh, potato sacks for clothes and, uh, and dirty faces, right? Obviously that's a joke. Some of you coming for the first time is like, what kind of cultist is this? <laughs> no, but notice this, the ga- this is the gathering of God's people that we have here in Nehemiah chapter nine. What do we do you know, for our church gatherings? This is what we're doing right now. This, this is what they did thousands of years ago. This is what we're still doing. Uh, not very in- innovative the church <laughs> keep doing the same thing. And maybe you're not aware of this, but there are a lot of people with very strong opinions about church clothes. Did you know this? <laughs> maybe you didn't grow up in church culture, but there are some very strong opinions about what kind of clothes you should wear when you come to worship with God's people. Um, I grew up with the tradition of um, my mom would force me into my quote unquote Sunday best, which I absolutely hate it. And I, I mean, the pictures prove that I was right. You know, like the haircut that I had and everything was just totally off. Um, but you know, I, I, I hated going into my nice clothes and coming to church because I, I felt like I was somehow trying to fool God about my rotten heart by putting on these nice clothes, right? And I, I, that's how I felt. But notice in our verses today, there's no mention of bringing your Sunday bests, right? There's no wearing your Sunday best over here in these verses at all. And in fact, you could make a case that he's making a case for wearing your Sunday worst in, in these verses. Um, so if you want to be truly biblical, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but they're wearing sackcloth. And I don't know if you've really thought about that 
I don't know, like anybody use that word in a common sackcloth? I just, I never really thought about what sackcloth was until I just stopped for a moment. And then I realized sackcloth, the cloth that you use for sacks. Like, have you, have you had that potato sacks full of potatoes and you felt the, the materials that they use for that is super rough. It's not fine at all. The, this, they have it sometimes a bunch of rice, like 10 kilos of rice in these like huge sacks. And it's like very rough material. That's what they're wearing. They're wearing potato sacks to a gathering of God's people. Very rough material, very uncomfortable. Rumors have it. It's even more uncomfortable than Lisa Pesa, even. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, the wool sweater that we wear here in Iceland. But they're not there to impress God at all. They're not there to come and bring their Sunday best. And I, if you're here and you're like, actually, I like wearing my Sunday best. I'm, I'm going to give you a break here in a second, right? But this is, this is them coming and they're showing God, we're destitute. We are lowly. We are not great in this situation. We have failed in multiple ways. We need your grace. And all this text, all this prayer is not about the, the awesomeness of the people, but the greatness of their God. And to make it worse, it's not just about the clothes that they wear. They take dirt and put it on their face. And this is the, I don't know, the opposite of makeup, I guess. Like this, is, this is the, uh, not only just coming in with no makeup, this is the wrong kind of makeup. You don't want to wear this at all, right? What are, they, what are they doing? They're coming in saying, I am not clean at all. I am not the impressive one. I, I heard an interview, I heard one foreigner, sorry, not an interview. <laughs> it was a conversation, a normal conversation between a foreigner and an Icelander about Icelanders. Why do they like the pool so much, right? Why is it that Icelanders are obsessed with public pools everywhere? And the Icelander, I was like, kind of like, yeah, I, I want to know. Why am I so obsessed with this? <laughs> and the Icelander said to the foreigner, I never thought about it this way, but he's like, the pool makes us all equals. Like no one can come in there wearing their fancy suits. No one can come in there with their business cards or, you know, whatever else, their phone. No, it's, we're all sort of awkwardly sitting there just in our, uh, in our uh, swimming trunks and we're all equals. The, the millionaire and the, the guy from the street were equals. And I, I thought about that when I was reading this first. What is he talking about? There are people there wearing potato sacks. The wealthy, the homeless, and what are they doing too? Got mud on their face. The wealthy, the homeless. And this is one crazy thing about our faith. It's at the foot of the cross, there's no one boasting about being impressive. We're all there on our knees simply to say, no, this is about hip. Doesn't matter how impressive you may look in the world's eyes. And here you have this whole community of Israel just coming to God wearing potato sacks and dirt on their face, saying, God, you are great. Now, I want to give you some slack. If you, if you put a lot of work into your makeup and clothes this morning, <laughs> I want to give you some, some slack over here. Uh, I, I get the intentions, by the way, from people who say, we need to wear our Sunday best. Um, after all, you know, I've been told this, like after all, if you meet with kings or queens from this earth, right? What are you going to do? You're going to put on a suit. If you meet your favorite celebrity, what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to work on your makeup or your suit or, you know, or your dress or whatever else. You're going to wear nice clothes because you respect them and you respect their opinions of you. And therefore, man, if we gather for, 
for Sunday worship. Why would you not bring your best? This is not only a king. This is not only a celebrity. This is the king of kings, right? He, he deserves all worship and all honor. So I get the intention. And I think that intention is beautiful if you have that. And I'm not trying to change you in, in that at all. And I'm definitely not making the case we should all wear potato sacks next week at all. So if that's your personal conviction, I'm not here to change that. Do that. If that is what, that's what honoring God looks like to you, keep doing that. Feel free to continue doing that. Um, but be careful of this, to take your personal conviction and make it the conviction that everybody else should follow. <laughs> it's like, this is how I think. Therefore, everybody else around me is wrong if they don't agree with me. And I would just recommend read, reading Romans 14, 15. This is about personal convictions and doing what the Lord requires of you. And sometimes that looks differently from what he requires of the, the brother or sister sitting next to you. Um, because ultimately I want to say this, God is not just another earthly king. He's not just another celebrity you would meet once. You, he doesn't just see you when you come into the church building on Sundays. When you walk out on a Monday, when, when your life looks like a car wreck on a Tuesday, when everything is going awesomely, <laughs> awesomely on, on a Wednesday, he sees you through all of that. If you are his, his Holy Spirit is in you. He sees you when you are polished and impressive looking to everybody around you. And he sees you when you are bare and when you are broken. So you don't only mean this King of Kings when you come in here on a Sunday, just remember that uh, he sees you throughout the week at your weakest moments. He reminds you that his grace is sufficient. And at your, at your best moments, he reminds you, you still need his grace. Okay. So you're not just walking in here to have a once a week meeting with the King of Kings. He sees you in all of those things, right? You have examples of, of this in the Bible where, where God is saying, hey, I, I see things not as the people around you see. They may see the nice clothes and be fooled to think that you, you, you're doing really great. First Samuel 16, seven says this, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so maybe, I don't know where your background is from. Maybe your background is you come from a church culture that said, man, for you to get the forgiveness of Christ, you need to earn it. You need to look impressive. You need to work for his grace. You need to pay Jesus back for his gift. And the way you do that is you look impressive. And maybe if you look impressive enough, you might just get God working in your life and through your life. Let me say, that's not how gifts work. That's not how grace works. Uh, that, because what happens when you pay for a gift, it ceases to be a gift, right? And if you're in here and, and when you walk into church buildings and you're putting on your Sunday best, it reminds you of like, man, I used to do this for years when I tried to impress God and I tried to force him by being good enough to, to, to allow me to experience his grace and forgiveness. But man, if, if you want to walk in here and just wear whatever you would wear on a Tuesday, it's fine by us, right? right? It's fine by us. As long as it's biblical, right? Don't, don't come in here wearing your uh, birthday suit. Okay. Nah. Um, same. Maybe, maybe you grew up and let's say you grew up at a, um, in a way that you didn't have respect or reverence for anyone or anything, right? So your whole life was just rebellion, looking down on others. And maybe you think, 
Man, actually me putting on my Sunday best is remembering that on Sundays, these people are worthy of my respect. God is worthy of my respect. God is worthy of my praise. If that's you, wear your Sunday best. <laughs> it's fine. But I love that the people here are putting on something that expresses their inward realities. But we see more in these verses. There's fasting, there's confessing, there's grief over their own sin and the sins of their forefathers. Now, let me start with fasting. Okay. By the way, how, I don't know how to ask this question because, uh, so, let, let me put it this way. Some person came up to me like a couple of years ago. It's like, do Baptists fast? <laughs> uh, because we apparently speak very little of fasting. Pentecostals speak a lot about fasting, you know? Uh, and so just a reminder, when the Bible talks about fasting, it's sort of implied that Christians do fast. And one of the interesting topics about fasting is that it's implied all over the place or it's explicitly said, like in our verses today, that, um, that the people of God were fasting, but it never really explicitly explains why, <laughs> right? And if you're into TikTok, you might think, oh, the, this is like intermittent fasting, like healthy, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. This is like days on end fasting for spiritual purposes. And so I, I like this topic a lot because it, it sort of assumes that we as Christians do fast, but man, why do we fast? Uh, there's something that, Luke, uh, that Jesus said in Luke chapter five, in verse 35. And I think this gives us the reason for why we should fast and why the people in this day were fasting. It's a very short verse where Jesus says, by the way, the religious leaders are kind of bothered by the freedom of the apostles and the disciples of Jesus. They were like, hey, we, the Pharisees fast, the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting. Why are your disciples just eating feasts all the time? Jesus says this, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. So what is Jesus telling us about fast? When we let go of eating, Number one, we're reminding ourselves that you live not by bread alone, but by the power of God. And you'd be surprised how long you can actually live without eating. <laughs> it takes a very long time. Um, you're also making a time, making the time. Uh, this is probably more back in the day than, than it is today. Like uh, my wife makes fun of me constantly for just how I inhale the food in front of me. Uh, she puts it on a plate and 30 seconds later, I just go... <laughs> And I'm like, thank you for dinner. I'm out. Um, this is, this may be weird for you if you're from other cultures where you like fellowship, <laughs> you like hanging out with people. This would definitely be weird 2000 years ago or 2,600 years ago in the, in the time of Nehemiah. When you ate, you weren't just eating. It was about the people. You would, you would hang out for hours on time. So, so what is fasting doing in the time of Nehemiah? Well, it's freeing up a bunch of time to not spend with people, but to spend with with God. And another thing is that you're focusing on not only nourishing your, your body, but your soul. Um, so, and, and I think this actually, this verse kind of explains the ultimate reason for fasting. What is he saying there? Hey, the reason for fasting is over right now. Why is it over right now? Because the bridegroom is with them. What is the implication? Before me in the Old Testament, people were fasting because they were reminding themselves that no matter how great the feast was here, 
They wanted the feast with their Messiah. They wanted their feast with the one who has come to deliver them and be with them. And Jesus says, I'm here now. There's no reason to fast when I am walking among you. When I go back, there's gonna be a reason to fast again to remind yourself that no matter how good the feasts on earth may look or feel or be, man, I look forward to the day to feast with my Messiah again, to have the one who has nail pierced hands wipe away my tears and have a feast with him. I think that is the ultimate point of fasting to remind ourselves, I don't want this. God, I wanna feast with you. And as the people of Israel and Nehemiah look around, they see, okay, the walls are restored. But again, what do we read in chapter eight and chapter seven? The city is almost empty. <laughs> they got impressive walls, but there are no buildings inside the city. So it's empty with few people. And they look around and they see like, man, this is the result of us leaving God. This is what happened when we took control and we pretended to be our own gods. And so they look around and they see the obvious implications of sin all around them. And they say, man, I don't need another feast. I need a feast with my savior, my Messiah. But all of this confessing and grief seems to arise from a very unusual grace of God on their lives as they are confronted by their sins and the sins of their forefathers. So they look around a largely destroyed city and they see the various, very, very obvious consequences of their sin. By God's grace, it's revealed to them that the sweetness of sin turns bitter so, so quickly. I don't know if you, you know, maybe all of you are perfect, but I've fallen into the temptation to think, man, if I just give myself this sin, it looks so sweet. And then you just go down that road a little bit and that sweetness turns bitter real, real fast. And the promises that sin gives you all the time never really delivers and you just feel emptier inside than you just started. Promises of sin may, may give you, promise you answers or joy or peace or purpose or whatever else, but it never ultimately delivers these things. We don't often think that grief could be a grace from God or pain could be a grace from God. But so often we need to be faced with grief so that we see a beauty of a savior. So often we need, sometimes it's the grace of God that that just stops you in your tracks and say, look around. What did God say in the garden to Adam? Where are you? Was it from God? No, no, no. He knew where Adam was. <laughs> like, Adam, can you stop? Look around. Where are you? What are you doing? Why are you hiding from me? What is going on? There are people who run through life who never truly experienced the hollowness of all the stuff that the world has to offer. And therefore they never turn from their endless toil to get to real peace and real joy and real purpose in Jesus. They just run and run and run. And all of a sudden there, there comes death. Jim Carrey, a theologian. I'm just kidding. Uh, doesn't he look like a great theologian though? <laughs> he quoted, he, he said it this way. I wish that everybody could be rich and famous so that they could see it's not the answer. The greatest danger of all is to waste your life running after the wrong thing, never catching it so that you could turn to the real source of life. As we gather, gather together like this, dear brothers and sisters, I hope you don't run from facing grief. 
so that you can get the relief that you need in Jesus. Right? It's like a doctor kind of trying to hunt you down to offer relief without you willing, being willing to accept that you actually have a disease that's dangerous. Right? Sometimes the grace of God is revealed by opening up our eyes to grief. The grace of God may at times hurt you with truth, but Jesus will never comfort you with lies. Now, if we wish to lay hands on Jesus' righteousness, we must first unclench our fists from our own righteousness. And to find true and lasting love at the cross, we must first let go of all the counterfeit gods that offer us all the things but never deliver. Our call to your family of faith is not to pretend to be perfect, but to have the humility to confess to one another and God our sins. When we come to him empty of ourselves, he can finally fill us up with himself. Now God does, does his best work with empty. Like think about the creation itself. You know that? Like the, the way that they, um, the Hebrew language uses, what is the word again? Uh, for when God creates, it's off. When God creates, he uses this very particular term to how God creates, because when God creates, he truly creates something out of nothing. When it talks about man creating things in the Bible, it's more like manipulating what's already there, right? He takes something that's empty and he creates something out of that emptiness. And man, God does his best work sometimes like that. You look throughout the Bible, it's the people who are kind of bankrupts that come to God and he uses. It's, it's the irony of him coming to Abraham and Sarah, to Baron Sarah, empty Sarah saying, I'm going to make a nation out of you and you're going to bless the nations of the earth. Or you think about all the, 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 the people that we read through um, in, in the nation of Israel and the people that are used mightily by God are the ones who come to him empty. You ever thought about that? King David, he's such a messed up character and yet he's called a friend of God, a man after God's own heart. And yet you see, you read a story and you're like, are you sure about that God? He's kind of messed up this guy. It's like, yes. Why? Because he was quickly to turn. If you've been taught or if you think the church is full of perfect people, it should be the opposite. <laughs> I think we should be the people who realize the most just how needy we are. We realize we're so needy that in fact, I can't turn to Oatmai to fix my problems. I can't turn to my mom to fix my problems. I have to turn to God of the universe to fix this problem. That's how needy we are. God can use empty as long as we're willing to come to him with empty hands. God uses cross to declare victory. He uses an empty grave to declare light. He does a lot with empty. But notice, they confess not only their sins, but the sins of their forefathers. Now, how many of you come from cultures where you have a lot of reverence and respect for your forefathers that came before you? All right? No one. Okay, there's one. <laughs> Just a shy one. Okay. Because um, I was thinking about this. It's like, well, this is not a whole lot. This is not a big deal. Right? Confessing the sins of their forefathers. And I was thinking about it as a, 21st century Icelander. Um, now, it doesn't seem like a big problem when we're so quick to be willing to throw people under the bus and, and mock people and the ignorance of previous generations compared to us. Uh, but this was a lot back in that day. 
Some of you come from cultures where ancestors are respected and revered, even some cultures that revere them to an unhealthy extent where it almost borderlines on, on worshiping ancestors. Um, but the Israelites certainly didn't worship their ancestors, but they had a lot of reverence and respect for the people who came before them. So to cling on to God, they needed to even confess not only their own flaws, but the flaws of the people that came before them that got them to the place that they were right now. As they saw previous generations leave God, the only one who was truly to be revered above everybody else. Now, what this may teach you today is if you come to Jesus, this may very well be the toughest challenge that you have to do. To see the emptiness of what you used to live for. Everything that deserved all of your honor or worship or respect before all of a sudden seeing it for what it truly is. Face even the truth that you may have wasted years of your life or decades of your life pursuing vain things and useless things. Now you may confess, you may have to confess that in searching for the right things to be loved or to, to have joy or lasting peace and fulfillment in this life, you sought it in the wrong people and the wrong places. And what you used to live for and find your identity in or your worth in, you must see in light of the reality of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, he, he, he put it this way. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will give you rest from your pursuit of worth and value as he is willing to shed blood for you. He will give you rest from trying to fill up your emptiness by offering you the one thing you were created for and your soul craves a relationship with your God and creator by the God, the son. God draws near to you. Even when we're running away, drawing closer to cover our shame and sin and to give you life, but to come to him. That is the thing. If you're going to turn to Christ, there are other things that you're turning away from. You have to let go of all else to lay hands on Christ. There's no option to turn half, you know, half turn to Christ while you also cling on what you used to enjoy. Jesus is Lord has no exception clauses. <laughs> you can't say Jesus is Lord over my life, except for these few areas that I've, I, I like these pet sins, right? My lusts, my sex life, my money, my hobbies, my time wasters. No, either he is Lord or he's not. What will it be? Will you turn to the spring of true life or will you keep pursuing vanity because it's too difficult to let go of the people and the things that you revere too much? And I want to end with Nehemiah 9, B to 5. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Imagine that. Some of you are thinking, man, this is getting to be a long sermon, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not Nehemiah long. <laughs> quarter of the day, they were reading the law. For another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Jerabiah, Bani, Bani again, and Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord, their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, again, has Benaiah, uh, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and 
Pethahiah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So what, what do we see? We see? We see worship and repentance informed and initiated by the word of God being proclaimed to the people. We see brokenness leading to people willing to come to God for healing. And I have a feeling that many people, maybe around us, maybe outside these walls, or maybe even here today, may not come to Christ for healing because they first refuse to see that they're broken. And they refuse to see what gate to this broken state. Only when we come to the end of ourselves can we have true revival in Jesus. So as they go into this prayer and repentance and praise, it comes from dwelling on the realities of the word of God and saying, who, who is God? And how should I behave in light of who he is? And I, do, I, I, I think this is one of Satan's most effective strategies to, to keep us not having revival in Christ is to keep you busy. And not just you, I don't want to be like you busy. No, all of us. Keep us busy. Running around to the next thing, having no time in the day to reflect on God, to plant ourselves and dwell on his word so that we never see the beauty of Jesus. Instead, we're just running to the next thing. Let me say this. I cannot change you. This sermon cannot change you. Only as you dwell on the realities of God does God start to move in you and change you. I can point you to Jesus, but I can't make you run to him. Right? That's why I kind of chuckle every time somebody says, you're forcing your religion down my throat. I'm like, I can't. <laughs> I wish I could force you to love Jesus, but that's not how love works. I can't make you love him. I can't force you. But what leaders are called to do can be seen in the text. Leading by example, leading in prayer, leading in praise, leading in confessing. And over the years, there have been stories of Christian leaders who fail to follow the examples of Jesus unfortunately. And I think those are the headlines that get more popular views. You rarely hear about the Christian leader who's just faithful for 50 years and then, then died. <laughs> That's not really a, a story that you hear very often. To show the humility of Christ, some Christian leaders have failed to care as Christ, to love as Christ loves. Now, some people say that the problem is that the modern church has created a celebrity problem with pastors and ministers. And I personally don't think anything can be done about that. Um, after all, our Bibles are filled with celebrities of faith and their flaws and their successes. We can think of Abraham and Sarah or Noah or Esther or Samson, or, you know, some of these Bible stories that we read to our kids are kind of, you know, R-rated, <laughs> you know, if you think about it, because of their messed up lives. You can think of Jesus, you can think of the apostles. Celebrity culture may take on new forms, but, it, but it, it's always been the case that some people get a lot of attention, but leaders can. And if you're going to be a godly leader, and I'm talking to all of you now, because every single one of you in here, you have a stage that you stand on that someone is looking at you, right? There are like literally a million copies of the Bible circulating around Iceland right now. Maybe not one of those copies, well, let's, let's say few of those copies will ever be opened by curious people to see what the Bible says. 
before they read the Bible, they're going to read you if they know that you're a Jesus follower, right? And so when I say Christian leaders, don't think, oh, the people on the stage on Sundays. No, I think God has called each and every one of us to be a leader in one way or another. And so you will get attention, be it good or bad. And the way to use our attention for good is to use our attention to reflect, to point to Jesus, to lead like Jesus, to lead like all, to not to lead like all the grace that God has given to you is thanks to you, but rather to, to see in the start of the, the prayers of the Levites, our job as leaders is to point to God. What do they say? Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. I love Paul the Apostle. He put it this way. It's a very short verse. If you're looking for a great memory verse, short right there. Be imitators of me, right? That would be bad if it ended there. No, as I am an imitator of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's what me and you are called to do. Our evangelism strategy is in big events. Our evangelism strategy is weird. It dwells on a person like you, being salt and light in your daily context, reflecting Jesus, seeking opportunities to talk about Jesus, loving like Jesus, saying to others, hey, follow me as long as I'm following Christ. The only legitimacy of a Christian leaders should be derived by our faithfulness to Christ. Just as Paul says, follow me with the key as I follow Christ. Your faith should not be based on the people around you. Your faith should not be based on pastors or preachers, but rather the one that all of us are supposed to be pointing to, which is Jesus Christ. Because pastors and preachers will fail you. Even if you look around this room, people here are nice people, but they will fail you too. And if your faith is built on them, that would be a fragile faith. Build it on the one that they point to. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you as we close today to grow in humility as you draw near the cross, to find a brother or sister, if you don't have one, to confess your sins to, to say, hey, these are the problems I'm struggling with. This is what I'm going through right now. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm behaving like. Be brutally honest. One thing it does, it definitely gives you humility. (laughs) Definitely gives you humility. And if you say, I'm going to meet with them next week, it gives you accountability. You know, you're going to be open and honest about your hard struggles about this next week. If you, if you don't have a person like that, you can talk to me. You can tell it to Svava. We'll get you someone. I will listen to you. I will pray with you. If you don't have one yet, pray to find one right here. You're supposed to be a family that's willing to confess our struggles to one another and to support one another as we seek to grow, to look more like Jesus. And you're not alone in your struggles. Man, that's, that's the problem. It's like when we stop confessing our sins to one another, one of the greatest lies that we start to believe is that I'm the only one dealing with this. I'm the only one this greedy. I'm the only one dealing with this particular problem. No, no, you would be surprised how messed up the church of God is. <laughs> But by God's grace, he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And he was faithful to his promise to make us look more like Jesus. These last few months, for me, I've been hurt. I've been confused. 
I've lacked focus. I've lacked energy. And in that, I myself have acted very wrongly. I started to rely on my own routines instead of God. Realizing now, just as I was about this chapter, as I look back, I was seeking to get out of hurt. It's one of the things that I think a lot of us do. You might be at a spot right now where you're just hurting a lot. And let me tell you this, one of the things as I was dwelling on this passage this week is like, man, I look back over months and weeks where I'm trying to get out of the hurting scenario instead of saying, God, where are you, what do you want to teach me in this? What are you trying to teach me about who you are in the midst of this? What God may be doing in my empty and your empty is to grow us. And man, if you can confess it to people around you, the struggles that you have, so they can pray with you. That's a gift. That is a gift that he's calls us to, that I think we can take to heart. But next week, we're going to go into the prayer. But I want to remind you, if you're in here and you're a Christian, and if you might be aware of just how much you fail today, there's grace. There's grace upon grace. That's why we gather. That's why we're singing songs that are not about you but about Jesus, right? That's why we read a Bible that's not about you, but about a savior. And during communion, that's what we're doing. If you're a Christian, meaning let go of all the other things that you think a Christian is, meaning you've, you trusted in Jesus, that he alone has cleansed you of your sins and that he's Lord of your life. If you've made those two commitments, then I want you to remember Christ. He had his last meal with his disciples. He broke bread saying, this is my body that's broken for you. He drank wine with them and said, this is my blood that's shed for you for a new covenant. And this is what reminds us of why we do this, why we gather because of Christ. And I want us to remember as we go into this week to be fueled by Christ and his love for us, his sacrifice for us as we continue our worship into the week. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kirka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland.